the, the, the host here is Jeremy Hobson. There are a number of people who just do not want to get vaccinated. We've got to get them vaccinated. And hopefully they will do it willingly. If not, there will have to be things that will essentially put pressure on them, such as you're not going to work in this particular agency or institution unless, in fact, you get vaccinated. This is the Hobcast. Welcome back to the Hobcast. I'm Jeremy Hobson. And by the way, we now have a result in the California recall. It's no on recall. And if you didn't catch our big California catch-up episode of the Hobcast with Scott Schaefer from KQED, go check that one out. Also, I will say again, share this podcast with your friends. Rate it if you can. Today, we have an emergency room doctor um, here to talk about what things are like as an ER doctor. Uh, I just want to briefly update you on what's happening with COVID right now, because if you live in the Northeast, or you live on the West Coast, you might not see it every single day, but 150,000 cases are still coming out of the United States per day, new cases, 1,800 deaths. We're back up to 1,800 deaths. 54% of Americans are now fully vaccinated. 63% have had at least one dose. And it's 74% with at least one dose if you're looking at just people who are 12 and older. If you look at the map of the country right now, it's pretty clear almost all of the cases and hospitalizations are coming out of places where vaccine rates are lower, which ends up being red counties, places that voted for President Trump, places where people are hesitant to get the vaccine. So we're going to talk about all that right now with Philip Asoskin, who I have known since I was in high school. We went to high school together in Illinois. Now she is an emergency room doctor in Washington, D.C. Philippa, it's great to have you on the Hobcast. Thanks so much for having me, Jeremy. It's a pleasure to be here representing myself as an emergency physician, but and, not my institution. Not your institution, which I will not name because, <laughs> you know, I mean, this is the thing. We've actually had a number of guests that have to get permission to talk on the Hobcast because, as you know, it's the most important media outlet in the entire world and it could ruin careers. Philippa, tell me what it's like right now as an ER doctor at this point in the pandemic. I mean, it's definitely been a trip this last year and a half. It's still extremely present. While we had a bit more of a reprieve, like everyone noticed earlier in the summer, the numbers are up again. Um, you know, in Washington, D.C., we've been fairly fortunate in that we have pretty good vaccination rates. They align kind of along the numbers that you're saying. We have about 58 percent that are fully vaccinated, 69 percent that have had one shot. We're lucky in that we have very large hospital capacity in the city, so we've been handling um, the increased numbers well, but it's ever-present and ever-stressful for our docs, for our nurses, for our patients. And are the patients who are coming in with COVID into the hospital right now, are they almost all unvaccinated people? By far, the majority are unvaccinated, and definitely the ones that are being hospitalized and the ones that are going to the ICU are very much majority unvaccinated. And do you talk to them about that when they come in? I do. And, you know, I hear a, lo a lot of different things. I hear COVID is a hoax. I still hear that, which is demoralizing and, and you know, still shocking after all this time. Um, there are people that, you know, have religious reasons they don't want to be vaccinated. There are people that you know, still are very nervous about side effects and feel like the whole process went too fast. And I do try to counsel my patients about getting the vaccine, but I find the ones that haven't gotten it yet are, you know, very, very hesitant to do so. And by the time they come to you, it's probably too late for them to get the vaccine because they probably have COVID at that moment. Yeah. So the patients I, I have that I diagnose with COVID, that's right, can't get the vaccine at that point. And some of them are interested. Once they've learned that they have COVID, they're suddenly very interested in getting the vaccine, um, but they'll have to do that down the line. Does this feel 
from your perspective in Washington, D.C., better or worse than any other points in the pandemic? I mean, the worst point was definitely for us, I feel, early, kind of in that April 2020 time. That's when we really saw patients coming in just one after another requiring advanced oxygen therapy or intubation. Um, and so it's felt a little bit more like that this past month than it had, you know, in the year in between. And so it's definitely been ramping up again. But these are unvaccinated people. Yes, exactly. And is the treatment that you offer now different than it was a year ago? It's changed somewhat. I mean, we're definitely early in the pandemic. We were intubating patients very early, putting them on ventilators. Uh, as we could have learned more about the disease, we're trying to hold that off because it's extremely high risk for patients. And so we're using other types of oxygen therapy, like high flow oxygen or BiPAP, which is a non-invasive ventilation method using a face mask. We use dexamethasone now, which has, you know, really the one kind That's of... That's a steroid? A, yes, an IV steroid medication that helps with the lung inflammation and is really the kind of one therapy that's really been proven to help the sicker COVID patients. And what about the monoclonal antibody treatment that President Trump got when he had COVID-19 and now it's it's becoming something that it sounds like a lot of places are offering? So we are offering that, especially for patients that are higher risk for getting sick with COVID. And if they come in with up to 10 days of symptoms and they don't have to be hospitalized and they're offered monoclonal antibody therapy. Does it work? The data is mixed. Um, I, I think there are definitely benefits, especially for those that are higher risk. And what about the one that people think is kind of a joke, but Invermec- is it Ivermectin? Ivermectin. Ivermectin. There is no data that has shown that Ivermectin is uh, beneficial for COVID-19. I haven't had any patients myself ask for that yet, but I'm certainly prepared for it. And what was the one that President Trump wanted like a long time ago that also turned out not to really be very effective? Did you ever use that? The hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine. Uh, we never really used that. No, no, it never really okay. panned out. Right. <laughs> Do you find that politics has played a large role in what's happening now with COVID-19 from your perspective? From my perspective, I think it has played the major role. I, I think that where we're at with it being so divisive in terms of mask wearing and vaccines and things that are really very proven public health strategies, the fact that it's so divisive, I think all comes down to politics and, and how everything was handled from the beginning. What has been the worst case that you've had to deal with with COVID-19? I've had a few. I mean, I've had I've had patients that have come in with incredibly low oxygen saturations um, who, you know, eventually we've had to intubate and have had a very difficult time getting those oxygen saturations up. And the, some, you know, some have come through and, and some have not. I've had several patients that have died, even very young patients who, you know, have been pretty healthy. I've had die in the ICU. Hmm. And what is that like when that happens? As a doctor? From, you know, from the emergency medicine standpoint, we don't, you know, don't necessarily experience that at the time in the ED because they get moved to the ICU and often, you know, that's where they get sicker and eventually pass. But I do follow up on my patients to see what happens. And it's incredibly sad when I, when I find that they pass on, especially patients that I had conversations with. I had conversations with their family, some that I expected to do better, but you just don't know who's, who's going to get the hardest cases. Well, and this is one of the things that we've heard a lot about is that not just for doctors, but also for nurses, people that are having to, to deal with this day after day, that it's just a lot. And some people are even leaving the profession. Yeah, it's been very demoralizing, I think, the further this goes on. Um, and it's I think it's harder to keep morale up. One of the greatest challenges we're facing right now in the emergency department is our staff and nursing shortage. We've had a lot of nurses leave, I think, for lots of different reasons. A lot of nurses are approaching retirement age and finding that, you know, this is a good time to get out. Um, 
I can speak for the emergency department specifically that it's a it's a difficult place to work, and then patients are you know scared, in pain, frustrated. The large percentage of patients that come in who are intoxicated, psychiatric illness, violence. And so nurses who are, you know, spend the most time directly at the bedside with patients bear the brunt of that. It's a stressful job. And some, you know, and some choose to move on. And then, you know, the, the less staff we have, the harder it is on the nurses that are still there. So I think it's a bit of a cycle. But it really causes a problem in the entire hospital because if we don't have nurses at the bedside inpatient, then we can't move patients upstairs. You know, the EDs are used more and more for boarding patients, and that means we can't bring new patients back, and the wait times go up, and it, it just becomes a very stressful situation. So I feel that the nursing shortage is, is one of our biggest challenges right now. Now, in addition to your role as an ER doctor, you also teach. Do you find that you're, that, that students that are coming into the profession now are, you know, certainly don't want to be dealing with this, don't want to be in the emergency department, want to be doing other things that aren't so stressful? It is interesting to just see how it's really impacted medical education. A lot of our um, kind of the first year and second year medical students are spending a lot more, less time initially in patient-facing positions because of all the COVID restrictions. And so they have less experience once they come into their kind of later years and into residency. And luckily, a lot of them are still very enthusiastic and kind of, but some are more reticent to work with COVID patients and, you know, prefer not to. And I can understand that as well, but it is part of what we do. What has all of this made you think about the idea of vaccination mandates, um, which has been floated around? I just saw a quote that Dr. Fauci said that they're thinking about having a mandate just to fly in this country, not even internationally, but also domestically. And people are a little worried about that. The, the idea that if you make people who are vaccinated show their vaccination every everywhere they go, it's going to be a disincentive. There's all kinds of social reasons. But what do you think about the idea of a vaccination mandate? I mean, from a personal standpoint, I think that vaccine mandates are an important strategy in public health when it comes to a big global disaster and pandemic like we have now. And it's not without precedent. We saw it with smallpox. We use vaccine mandates for school children. It's not something that has not ever been seen before. Again, I think it kind of comes along this political divide. But this vaccine is, you know, proven to be amazingly effective, really amazingly safe. Yes, there are risks, but the risks are far higher for, you know, for patients who have COVID. Um, and I Have you had any patient that has come in with a, a severe problem because of the vaccine? I haven't. And really, while our hospitals and ICUs are full with COVID patients, they are not full of patients because of adverse effects from the vaccine. And that's what I think it comes down to. So I think the vaccine mandates, I think, are going to be an important part of the strategy. I, I, I think it's we have to use all our, our public health tools and we have to try to reduce the risks for everyone um, as much as we can. And I think that is going to be part of that. What about mask mandates? How do you feel about those? I think that mask mandates, you know, in higher situations like indoor settings, I think is still important. I was dismayed, honestly, when the CDC kind of dropped a lot of the indoor masking early in the summer, only to have to kind of roll that back because I, you know, I kind of anticipated that those we would need that again. And I think that it's a very simple, you know, non-invasive strategy that I think is going to be important. Now, you avoided COVID all the way along in the first year of COVID-19. You never got it. Not until recently. Until recently. Breakthrough yeah. case. Yeah, I had a breakthrough case myself just a few weeks ago, you know, obviously after being fully vaccinated. And do you think that that was because, because you would have been one of the very early ones to be vaccinated as a doctor. Do you think that that is because 
your vaccine like wasn't as effective as it would have been three or four months earlier, or just there were so many people coming in with COVID? Like you're never going to really know, but do you have any sense of why, why you think you got that breakthrough case? I think it's probably a combination. I'm sure that there is um, waning of the efficacy somewhat. I think that's going to be expected. I also think that I've, in recent weeks, have been working a lot and have had many more patients with COVID. We know that Delta is much more infectious. And so I just think even with my trying to be diligent with my PPE, I think it's just much more of a, a risk given how many more patients we're seeing in the hospital with COVID and Delta being so much more infectious. And when it comes to your PPE, do you have to double mask or do you just wear one mask? So generally with our patients who we know have COVID, for sure, I'm wearing my N95 and a surgical mask and my face shield and my wow. gown. Um, I tend to wear an N95 with every patient encounter because it's you the, never know. the amount of times I've had patients come in for something else and I've also had COVID is, is quite high. Mm-hmm. Actually, that brings up another question, which is, you know, because the ICUs, because the ERs are being filled up with COVID patients, a lot of people who maybe have a heart attack or a stroke or some something else that they would have anyway are unable to get the care that they need, especially in places where the hospitals are fully overwhelmed, which is probably not the case where you are. But how has this affected all the other things that you would be doing with patients? I mean, it's just adding to the, the pressure. You know, when, when COVID started and the, the volumes just plummeted, you know, everyone did stay away from the emergency departments initially, and we were really mainly taking care of COVID patients. But now we're, you know, we're close to our pre-COVID volumes. We're, we're at 90% of our pre-COVID volumes for the emergency department. That means we're seeing everything else as well as COVID. So it just adds, especially with the nursing shortage I mentioned, it just adds to the pressure and to the ability to care for everyone. The longer the waits are, the less staff we have, the harder it is to to get patients taken care of as well as we'd like to. So as somebody on the front lines of this situation, are you planning for the future? What what do you expect in the next year? Do you think you're going to be in this situation for a long time? Do you think things are about to get better? They're turning the corner. What what do you see? So hard to say because every time, you know, for, for months now, I've been hoping that we've been turning the corner more than we have. I mean, I think it's it's going to be a long a long term problem. I think we'll still I think we'll see ebbs and flows like we have. I think this current surge will go down at some point, like the others have. You know, will it get worse again in the winter when we drive more people indoors? I think that's definitely a risk as well, especially if we don't get vaccination rates up. Well, and I think it's pretty clear that the you know the weather plays a role in the sense that in the places where people have to be inside, the cases go up. Right now, look the south. There's a political aspect to that, and it's a big one. But at the same time, it's very hot in Florida and Texas right now. And so the people go inside to have air conditioning, just as in the winter when it's very cold in the north, people go inside to have heat. I think you're right. Once we get further into the winter, it's probably going to be worse in the northern part of the country. I think that's quite possible. And, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with other variants. I think we just have to hopefully do our best to mitigate the risks with the tools we have. And vaccines are a huge part of that, as well as masking and and all the the things we've been doing, social distancing and, and testing and tracing and so forth. We have to use them all. So let me ask you something else, because you, in addition to um, your work, obviously, in the ER, you're also on a committee that uh, looks at the opioid crisis and how to deal with that. We've seen that in the last year, there have been more overdoses, maybe a record number of overdoses in this country. Generally, there are major negative effects to locking everybody down, making it so that people can't have their the job that they're used to or see people that they're used to or have the social life that they're used to. How has that side of it played out for you? 
We've definitely seen more more patients with overdoses, and it you know ebbs and flows in terms of what the availability and what kind of drugs are around. We've had a big problem in the district with uh, fentanyl as well, um, and so that's much higher risk for opioids and deaths. You know, we're trying to approach it in in different ways. We're trying to make Narcan, which helps reverse the um, opioid effect, much more available. We have been hiring peer recovery coaches um, to work directly with high risk patients in the emergency departments and working to offer patients to get on a kind of get into detox programs or to get on to, to therapies that help reduce their opioid use. Do you think that that's pandemic related, the, the, the uptick in opioid use? I mean, it's been a, it's been its own pandemic or for epidemic a time, for a long right. time now, but I think it's definitely exacerbating it as there's just so much st- stress on, on everyone. Mm-hmm. Do you see any solution to that problem beyond Narcan? Because Narcan is like, you know, if the person's about to die, you can save them doesn't mean that they're not going to end up in the same situation a week or two weeks or a month later. But is there, have you found any solution to the opioid crisis in your work on that? We're working a lot with medication-assisted therapy, so Suboxone and and some work with Methadone um, that helps um, treat those kind of cravings and those need for opioids to help patients kind of get off of some of the stronger opioids like heroin and like fentanyl and so forth. And so I think that that plays a huge role. And I think, you know, it's really important with mental health in general and with substance abuse to to destigmatize this. I think a lot of people, you know, don't there's a lot of shame involved with it and people don't want to talk about it, but it's so common and I think we really need to destigmatize it and, and have those therapies more available and and you know, have Narcan more available and for there not to be this kind of shame and under the table approach to it. I think we really have to to bring it out in the open. Now, Philippa, if we go way back, you and I met probably in 1995 or something like that when we started at our high school, Uni High in Urbana, Illinois, and we were in theater together. We were in a couple of plays together. And then you went down this road towards medicine. And before that, actually, you also went to the Kennedy School at Harvard and and did sort of public policy kind of stuff. But what made you want to do emergency medicine? I would not have seen that for you back in those days. You know, I think it was back in our biology, general biology freshman year days that I got really interested in science and and more interested into medicine. And then I've always had an interest with health policy and public health in, in working with underserved patients and uninsured patients. And that's one of the things we get to do in emergency medicine, my greatest kind of honor is to get to treat anybody that walks in the door as I see fit, regardless of who they are or their citizenship status or their education status or their insurance status. We take care of all patients. And to me, that's very gratifying and just very important for as a, from a health policy and public health perspective to, to provide that service. Do you see fewer people who are uninsured now with Obamacare in the last 10 years or so? It's definitely been a huge improvement in the coverage. Absolutely. But there are still people that have no insurance. There are. Out. There are. And it's very, as you know, it's very complicated how, how you even sign up for insurance. It can be very, very complicated. So we try to kind of help assist patients in getting signed up. And so there definitely are still people that are uninsured and underinsured. Um, but it's, it's definitely been an improvement since Obamacare. Do you feel any kinship with like the restaurant workers, the service workers right now? Because like them, you have to go into the office. A lot of people at the moment who work in corporate America or working remotely, they're working from home. You can't do that. You've got to be in the ER. I mean, all, all the people that have to be kind of frontline and our frontline workers in all different industries are, you know, they're vulnerable and they're high risk and it's stressful. And, and so I do feel a kinship. And that's why I do believe that everyone really needs to step up and 
participate in this global society and, and help protect themselves and others and get their vaccinations. But what does that mean for the listeners of the podcast? Because I'm guessing, I'm not sure, don't know the details about this, but I'm guessing that most of them, if not all of them, are vaccinated. What should we be doing? I think you should be talking to our, you know, friends and family who are hesitant and and in a non-judgmental way, but trying to kind of talk through what the hesitancy is and and really encourage everyone to do their part. And also just to understand that, you know, we are going to see these breakthrough infections. That's to be expected. It doesn't mean that the vaccine is not doing its job. It absolutely is. It's reducing these much higher risk cases and and it's it's still important to do. Do you have any friends or family that are unvaccinated? I have a, f- a few more, I think probably more distant, um, but most of my closer friends and family are, are largely vaccinated. Have you had to have that conversation with anybody or just patients that you don't really know that well? It's really more of patients. I've been lucky that my family and friends have been on board. Well, and what do you say to them? You know, I really just try and go through again the risks of that we know that you're so much at higher risk if you're unvaccinated. You know, you are five more times likely to get infected, 10 more times likely to to be hospitalized or to, to die, you know, and so and the risks are huge. Um, and I really try and kind of focus on risk mitigation and also reassure people that we're now kind of under full, you know, full authorization with the vaccine. It's been very well studied and the time has come. But you actually had a patient that told you that it was a hoax. I've had a few, yes. Even as they were in the emergency room with COVID-19. With COVID. Yeah. There are people that really still don't believe it's real, which is extraordinary to me. It's hard to, it's hard to argue against that. Is there anything you're hopeful about as you look at the COVID situation right now? I mean, I think things are getting better. We do have vaccines. We're moving in overall in the right direction. We are getting to open up again. My nieces and nephews have all gone back to school, which is huge for them. And I think, you know, we need to work to keep them safe. But, you know, things are opening up again. And I'm excited to, to get to do the things I love to do. And I think that will continue to get better. That is Philippa Soskin, who uh, is an emergency room doctor in Washington, D.C., and an old friend of mine. Philippa, thank you so much for coming on The Hobcast. Thank you so much for having me, Jeremy. And next week on The Hobcast, we are going to talk with a former NFL player uh, who came out of the closet after leaving the NFL, then was on The Voice, uh, now has started a Hawaiian restaurant. He's from Hawaii. Ezra Tuaolo will be on The Hobcast next week. Fell in love with you before the second show, and your guitar, and you sound so sweet and clear. All right, that's that is next week. Don't forget to rate this podcast, share it with your friends. I'm Jeremy Hobson on Twitter at Jeremy Hobson. I'll talk to you next week. Bye.